Everyone and welcome to a special early holiday edition of the Rumcast. Yeah, ho ho ho! A little, a little pre-Christmas surprise. We wanted to get an extra episode out to you early, right before it should be the twenty-third right now. So maybe you're traveling to spend time with loved ones. Maybe you just have a little time off for the holidays. Either way, we were able to do a really fun episode with Richard Seal from Foursquare. Yes. We're going to be talking all about the new High Esther Rum from Foursquare. That's right, High Esther Rum from Foursquare, something what? I think a lot of people didn't expect to see. We'll get into that in a minute. But in the spirit of the holiday season, John and I, my co-host John Gulla, I'm Will Hookinga, by the way, I don't usually do the intros. John usually does, so I'm a little yeah, off my game. You're supposed to say this is the Rumcast, the podcast that uh wait now i forgot it yeah what do we do i think it's the podcast where we talk we talk to the people who love and shape it yeah so that all is things rum related all things rum related with that's the people right. who that's love right. and shape it there we go yes. we've, we've got our own podcast we got it down. together Whew. anyway we're very professional around here <laughs> but what we wanted to do before we get to the interview with richard was just each extend a christmas wish for the rum world in the spirit of the holiday season. So, John, hit me with what is your wish? If you could have one wish for the rum category, the rum family, the rum universe, mm-hmm. what would it be? So, this is, I, I put a lot of thought into this, Will. So, I think this was a good I'm one. I'm guessing for that us. you did because I texted you about this idea like <laughs> six hours ago. So, I just assumed you had been doing nothing else but pondering. But that this since. since uh, yeah, you should see my, my whiteboard. Like with all the writing and like uh, crazy, crazy writing and symbols on it. No, it's like so, uh, it, it's like the the chalkboard and the the Goodwill Hunting. Yes, or a Beautiful Mind. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly right. I've got all this type of calculus on there. So I thought about this in different ways, and I thought about what what was something that I really thought was impactful or could be impactful. Okay. To the rum world, and so if you recall, Will. December 28th, almost exactly a year ago, yeah. December 28th, 2020, Matt Petrick wrote an article about something, which was that the TTB said that now in the U.S. we can have 700, 700 ml. ml bottles. Okay, I like where you're going with this. This is actually something related to this crossed my mind, but oh, I didn't really? pick it, so well, please good. continue. Yeah, so that came out, and I remember rejoicing that day, last Christmas, thinking, yes, this is the finally dawn what of a new era for it. Yes, and yet, this entire <laughs> year, Will... Crickets... I have seen nothing and no change and no 700 ml bottles in the U.S. And really, we we even talked to a couple of people this year through some of our episodes about it and and then offhand and heard, you know, just basically that it really, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze just yet for various reasons. (laughs) I Uh, like that. I haven't heard that saying before. (laughs) Really? Is that like a Florida orange juice kind of thing? I don't know. I think I got it from some some movie or something, but... Yeah, so it just struck me as like, if I really had a Christmas wish, it would be this year that we now have producers start to release 
all these amazing releases we see in Europe all the time yeah. here in the U.S. And then maybe also get some U.S. releases over to Europe. I, I want peace and joy and love and harmony amongst our rum communities and the ability to to share in these special releases all across the world. You know, and, we we have we have like the World Health Organization. We need the WRO, the World they, Rum. The uh, or I guess it's organization. World Rum Organization. <laughs> I like it. The WRO Organization. We are starting right now. Will you and I are the first two members, and wow. everybody else who's listening, you want to join the WRO? <laughs> Let's do it. Um, Come join our coalition. Um, yes. Yeah, I think the logic with that, kind of like you were saying, was part of the reason that, and this isn't the only reason, but part of the reason why we don't see some of these wonderful independent bottlings from mm-hmm. Europe in the US is because like they'd have to do a whole separate bottling in the 750 ml size mm-hmm. um in order to get it over here but i mean like that's that's one obstacle but it's still really difficult just yeah sure. i mean like the fact that you have to get a different distributor for every state and yeah. every state is different so every it, state i've been told is kind of like entering a new country basically so i know i know um they don't make it easy here yeah yeah but but hopefully maybe we will see some momentum on that because i would gladly also like pay a little less to get a little less with i would too or you know honestly i'm i'm okay with paying almost the same for a 700 and a 750 i may be in the minority some people (laughs) might be out there shouting you know uh shaking their fist at me right now john well, but, if it means more selection, I would right. pay the same amount. It, yeah, exactly. You're getting more interesting selections in your local area or in your region. I'm okay with that. Okay, and I'm okay with missing the extra 50 mLs to get that opportunity. So, you know, hopefully that was the first step. There's many others, but my Christmas wish is going to magically remove all those impediments this year. Love it. And we're we're gonna have more. So so we'll. Uh, follow that one up what's your christmas wish so the funny thing was you know there's kind of two directions you can go in with this with this christmas wish exercise one Mm -hmm. is to do something very you know spirit of the season like talk about less arguing more people like coming (laughs) together agree Mm -hmm. like everyone agreeing that like transparency is the way you know do a kind of you know that kind of thing like peace and love kind of vibes um i was afraid you would go that direction and then it would make me look small-minded but we both went the small-minded selfish direction (laughs) so i don't feel bad now so my my thing is also bottle related but i mean really it's at the end of the day it's about what's inside the bottle a frequent talking point or something we like to note every now and then anytime i've noticed anytime we talk about a rum that is 43 percent abv we're like mm-hmm. hey thanks for that extra three percent you know yep. it makes it yep. makes a big difference up from the the standard kind of bottom of the barrel 40 yeah. percent mm-hmm. abv john i want to take things a step further because if uh-huh. we're going to 43 why, why why not, not? go to 46 46 uh, you, you know you know how a lot of times you hear expressions like 30 is the new 40 that kind of yes, thing. Or, yes, wait, no, 40 yeah. is the new 30. Right, right, right. I want to mirror that spirit. Why not okay. 46 be the new 43? You know, I walk around the bourbon section every now and then when I'm trying mm-hmm. to get to the rum section. Right. And I see a lot more standard releases that are above 40. You know, you see a lot of 100 proof stuff like right. that. And I'm not right. saying rum has to be exactly like bourbon because I don't want rum to be like bourbon. No. 
I'm not saying you have to go all the way to 100 proof, even though... But hey, there are good I, things about bourbon, I, I right? I like that, sure. Saying, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, let's take this up a notch, you know? Let's, let, let's see some more kind of flagship releases that are mm-hmm. just by standard up to 46 or even 48. That would be really nice to me. That extra 3% can go a long way. We even saw that with the rum that we helped release with right. Hell's Key. We mm-hmm. went with 46%. On that Fiji rum, and that little extra bump up in proof made a big difference, and I think it's a really nice little spot. So, yeah, that is my Christmas wish for rum this year: is that we would see a mass movement upwards, just a little bit. I'm not saying everything yeah, has just to creep up to that proof. Just give us a few options that, that go up just a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I think our listeners would really like that. And I'm definitely, uh, I, I have them in my heart with this wish, not not me. <laughs> I, I was thinking the same thing. It's all about everybody <laughs> out there in the community. The yes, we're, we're totally altruistic here. But it, I, I agree with you. And I think I, I've mentioned before on the podcast that 46, 48 kind of feels like a nice sweet spot for me as a, a connoisseur, if I can, if you'll allow me that term for, for you know, just... Well, I, I wouldn't that... have allowed it, but this is your podcast too, so I can't stop you. <laughs> well, I, it's that's right. I said it now. It is what it is. <laughs> Sorry, not taking it back. So I, I do think that for us who are heavy into rum and, and into spirits in general, probably the the forties a bit low. And yeah. although I I do enjoy some rums at forty percent, there are still some out there that I I don't mind it. But I could, to your point see it being much better right. at a 43 or then 46%. So raising that floor a little bit, I can see where you're coming from with other spirit categories doing similar things and enjoying that. And I, I think we are going to see that. And I do think we're seeing some movement with it. There's at least two rums, and I'm not going to say any more than that now, but for for our upcoming episode where we talk about our rums of the year categories, Ooh. there's at least two rums there that I noticed that part of the reason I think that I picked them is because they sit higher than 45%. Well, and you know, another rum that is, at this point, it's not just a special release, it's kind of mm-hmm. a standard thing, is Probitas, which is yeah. bottled at 47% ABV, I believe. Yeah. And yep. bringing it full circle, comes from Foursquare, but has Bam. some, you know, kind of higher ester rum from Hampton mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. blended in with it. Mm-hmm. But now, as we're about to find out from Richard Seal in this interview, Foursquare has made its own take on high ester rum. Right. And I think... And why that term is problematic. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I love hearing hearing Richard's take on kind of choosing the lesser of three evils when describing the rum as high <laughs> ester. So... But it, you I know, wish you all could see the pain on his face when he had to do <laughs> yeah, it as well. Yeah, yes, it was great. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of people out there have probably at this point kind of seen rumblings of this. Maybe they've seen the the label shot from the upcoming Velier release, Habitation Velier release of this rum, which is the sample that you and I were both sent from a friend of the podcast who attended the Barbados Rum Experience and got to try this rum right there at Foursquare. She brought back uh, some of the rum and sent us some samples. So we were able to try it. And as you know, soon as we kind of heard about this concept of a highest rum coming from Foursquare and getting to try it, mm-hmm. we reached out to Richard because we wanted the full story. And I, what I was really excited to learn 
going into the interview was, is doing this style of rum indicative of a sort of new direction that Foursquare is going in? And I don't mean leaving behind what what they're great at already, but kind of adding something to their arsenal. Or is this kind of like a one-off, hey, here's this cool thing that, that we can do? And the person who shared the sample with us did, you know, kind of frame it as being sort of showing some of the possibilities there still are within the framework of the proposed GI, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you can come up with something that you probably haven't tasted anything like it from Barbados before. Um, and I think that's part of it. But, you know, in talking to Richard, that that side of it actually didn't really come up. It's really more about a, a, a process at Foursquare that started several years back and i i honestly think that maybe 10 years from now the rums that we're seeing coming out of foursquare i think it's 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 i think they're going to stay true to what we think of when we think of foursquare but i think there's going to be a a breadth in the mm-hmm. amount of variance sort of new angles and things like that that using fresh cane juice in some of their rums that they're making there. Like, I, I really think we might view what's happening right now as kind of like, not a turning point, but like there was kind of four square before this and four square after this. An like, inflection I think, point, maybe? Yeah, an inflection yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um, or kind of like a, a new era in, you know, how we think about the rum that comes from there. So, yeah. yeah. Did you have any, any particular takeaways or anything from the interview? Well, a- anytime you get a chance to talk to Richard Seal, you know it's going to be an enlightening experience, and, and that's pretty much uh, exactly what it is. And and a- almost all of our questions are centered on the idea of talking about that high ester production. But there's some other things in there that are always fun to hear from Richard yeah. and, and always enjoy speaking to him. And, you know, he, he's obviously left an in- indelible mark, you might say, on the rum industry at this point. We're, working Ma- maybe in the, the newest ECS release in there. Shaking up the shibboleth. <laughs> uh, you might say, or I don't know, I don't have anything else for, for right now, but yeah, he it's always enlightening. Yeah. And if you're wondering right now, like, what is a high ester rum? Like, why why is this, you know, a, a, a big deal or interesting that Foursquare is doing this? We're, we get into all that with Richard. We kind of talk about, you know, I think what comes to mind for most people when they hear high ester are Jamaican rums. Mm-hmm. Um, although there are high ester rums made outside of Jamaica, but we, we get into all that and like, you know, what he considers to be a high ester rum and, and that sort of thing and and why they're doing it at foursquare and what it's going to look like going forward so all that and more coming up in the interview
Okay, so we are here with Richard Seal from Foursquare Rum in Barbados. And uh, longtime listeners, you may be having some deja vu right now, but that's n- it, it, is, it is exactly the second time that we've now had Richard Seal on the podcast. And Richard, it, it's been nearly two full years since we last spoke, if you can believe it, just prior to COVID. I think most rum geeks like us who listen to this podcast will, will be at least somewhat well acquainted with what Foursquare has been up to since then. But wanted to ask from your perspective... Uh, what's been going on with you and at Foursquare since early on in 2020? Yes, um, we've been busy with quite a few things, which, you know, timing did come together. Uh, a lot of the reasons why they, they came together is because of the COVID delayed a few things. And then once things started to get more relaxed, then they sort of came together. So if you look at the But Still project, I dare not tell you when I ordered that um, <laughs> so this is the new the new pot still that you brought in right yeah exactly so then that shipped last year it took it's taken all of this year to to do the commissioning because all the the bits and actually the main last the control system which which is always in by necessity the last piece because you, you finalize all every or everything and that you're going to control so, but yeah, uh, that would obviously be, be the highlight, which is still to to pull off where we're, we're commissioning it this week. So, yeah. Does that mean, week. does that mean like using it for the first time? Well, we're still, we, we've run as, got as far as we've run the uh, hot water through it. So we, okay. we've, we've distilled water. In it. So rum, rum will be a little more interesting than water. Yeah. So, so the, the, the first step of the commissioning was to, Set up and check all the instruments, and because we have all quite a bit of sophistication on this one, is that was you know quite a challenge. And everything is everything is a little more difficult because of of, yeah. of growth things. Uh, this box still is unusual. It has three pumps, and pot stills don't have pumps. Pot stills mm. just run on the, the vapor pressure. But um, but the, the, having three pumps is fine. It goes three pumps through three variable speed inverters, and they get very complicated to set up. And, and then you know it's got a you know a level uh, indicator, but it's not it's not your average level 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 indicator. It's electronic. It can tell you the level of the liquid, the level of the foam. It can tell you the rate in which they're changing. So you know one of the things about the two pot stills at Foursquare, it's a very good example of how you take a very very old principle that you know the double retort has been in place for over two hundred years. Mm-hmm. And of course, batch distillation has been in, you know, from 1600s. But here you take the Del Retour and you're not doing anything, anything really different than the distiller of early 1800s. But what you have is the tools of control and measurement. Well, you know, you have the tools in control and measurement. I couldn't have dreamed of five years ago, far less to die in the, in the 1800s. So it's a good, kind of good illustration of, of, of that. Is that because has technology changed that much in the five years, or is it just you couldn't have imagined having something this sophisticated? A lot of, of, yeah, because I mean, automation and and things like that. Batch distillation has not always had a lot of automation because when you think of automation, the things that lend themselves best to automation are steady state things. So, I mean, the most obviously, one of the examples I can give you is, is, is an aircraft flying level. Well, I mean, that's just. You know, cruise control. You know, so I add 
Yeah, exactly. That's why uh-huh. we had you know, autopilot systems for for you know long time, and they're more and more sophisticated. But right. because you, you know, there's nothing a, a computer system likes better than to do keep everything in a steady state. <laughs> and, um, so continuous distillation has always lent itself well to automation. Batch distillation, because it does not have a steady state condition, has always been you know much more of a manual and always having a manual um, yeah. level of input. So, you know, the, the automation there, again, is more about, as they say, feeding information and, and precise measurements, precise control. But, you know, there's not, there's not going to be a computer system where you just switch it on and says, okay, batch, distill me some rum. <laughs> like, a, like a K-cup um, coffee machine or something. Yeah, whereas <laughs> the column still, you know, once you get the column still up around, I mean, the column still is literally very analogous to Flamina Plain in the sense of you start it all up and then you sort of, leave the systems to to control and you just um, keep your eye on everything. Mm. Batch still is not like that. It's still much more of a, a manual in, intermediate process. But as I say, you know, the, the batch cells still give you, our two batch cells give you a good illustration of how you can take this fundamentally the same process and add these little tools, these little things. So, uh, like, for example, the other thing that, that's very clever on you still is the eating system. So, again, in the early 1800s, it would have been fire-driven. Right. Now, right. I a, now I have a twin heating system, steam coil and, and steam jacket, okay. steam bain-marie. All the mm. chefs listening will know what I mean by bain-marie. <laughs> right. Um, I know that from uh, from my baking show watching experience. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, and the very, very earliest uh, stills, Actually, you know, sort of the original ceramic stills of, of an alchemist, you know, or, or for an apothecary making, mm-hmm. you know, would have had banderites. But, you know, wind stills got larger and for spirit making, they went with, you know, fire driven. But now, so we have this, we have this twin system. So it's very, very, very clever because it really, um, it allows for, uh, you know, a very controlled uh, and very even heating and very low difference in temperature of steam versus temperature of the, the liquid. So it's good also for energy savings, but uh, it, it, it's, it's really taking that control of how you deliver mm-hmm. the necessary energy into your glasses wine to get it to distill and do it in the most controlled manner that you can possibly do it. When you bring in a new still like that, I imagine some of the impetus for that is to expand capacity. But is there also, is there a, a period of time where you kind of approach it from, okay, we have this new still, this new variable, we have to figure out, you know, the best way to use this to make our rum you know, to be able to to get as close as we can to how we make rum on the other stills? Or do you see it more as how can this add something a little different to what we do? What, like, how do you approach no, that? No, it, it, it's very much, so adding, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the 25 years, it, it's, you know, things have changed. Not in terms of what we make, but in terms of what the opportunities are. Hmm. I mean, because okay, the changes what we make too, obviously, which is what we we're going to discuss later. <laughs> right, yeah, we'll get but, there eventually. Um, but uh, it's all driven by, by the opportunities, and that's the real change. So what I mean is if I, if I go about, when I discuss the, the four-spirit vintages, one of the motivations I explain the vintages is, as opposed to a permanent skew, you, you, your vintages can, can sort of you know reflect the desire at the time. And so sometimes mm-hmm. when people go back in the case, Foursquare 1998, or they look at Foursquare 1998, 
And I had the chance to take something the other day. I was, I was actually pleasantly surprised that it uh, <laughs> went. Uh, Were you a little afraid of, of what you might find? Yeah. I was like, <laughs> because I'm explaining, you know, back then, you know, that was 100% column silver. Hmm. Because back then, that was very trendy. People wanted lighter rums. People wanted sweet rums. They wanted... And so, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that we were competing with at that time was like sweetened rums. So, you know, really, if we're straight out in 2008, you know, 40% column still, this, this represented, um, you know, the, the, the Uber geeks at this time, other, other than, other than the really Uber Uber, because there always were for a few breaking the Karenese. Right, right, right. But, you know, a, a, a rum enthusiast at the time might have been drinking some of these other, um, you know, beginning with a C. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, I literally had one serious rum enthusiast, you know, come and visit me and tell me, you know, that Four Square 998 is his favorite rum of all time. And, you know, but his other favorite rum was, and he named that rum beginning with <laughs> So, again, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's not that we were doing pot still rum at the time. And the blends, you know, the Arrow Seal 10 year old at that time, I didn't pass still, but it was like, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to do this four square 1998 and it's going to really show off this sweet column rum style. And now right. what's happened is, let's say the opportunities have changed. So because the opportunities have changed and people now want the heavier style rums and, and there's a market, I mean, there was always a market, but it's now bigger. Bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more who appreciate the style of rum. So something that used to happen in the past more often will come back, which is selling 100% pot still rum. I mean, that used to happen in Barbados. I think Rampier was the last to do it. Um, and I think they stopped there as I think the 60s or 70s, but it mm-hmm. was, you know, it was not uncommon for Barbados to drink. You know, and if you go back, and I've done this, I've tasted some with, you know, from Steve Rim's collection. You go back and you taste a Barbara's Rum for the 1970s. It's pretty light because this was the fashion style. Sure. This is hmm. wanted. You know, if you put too much pot still rum in your rum in the 1970s, people would reject it. You know, they're drinking, you know, 1970s is the dark ages of all spirit. <laughs> you look at Dutch whiskey and bourbon and it's all the tribal era. Because everyone's just drinking rum and coke or whatever. It's just a terrible, terrible era. So, yeah, I mean, you move with the time. So, so when we put in, you know, come back to your original question. So when we put in the platform, <laughs> it's not a reflecting so much an overall increasing capacity because, of course, we still only ferment what we ferment. Sure. But it reflects the fact that there is more demand for the style of runs that is going to come out of plastic. Well, hmm. it'll be uh, it'll be cool to see you guys getting that up and running down there for sure. To move a little bit into the high ester, uh, we'll get there in a second, but you know, I was going back and I was listening to when we had you on the show last time because that was the first time I remember it was near the end of the interview and it was the first time I heard you talk about making cane juice rum at Foursquare, which I know this, the high ester isn't all cane juice, but we'll get to that in a second. But I remember, I think you said at the time you were sourcing cane from a farmer in St. George who was still hand cutting and then you were taking that, you were milling it at the distillery and then you were also getting some juice directly from St. Nicholas Abbey. That's correct. I did not get any from Nicholas in 20 or 21, but in the past we did. 
Okay. I mean, which is a reflection of um, success on Nicholas's part because they basically have enough demand. To use. Yeah. yeah. So originally uh, I was taking from them because they couldn't distill all, but now they have enough demand between the cane they used to make the rum and the cane they make to make syrup and they sell syrup. Mm-hmm. I joke sort of with Larry, but it, it, it's wonderful how I helped him get started with a little rum and he helped me get started. <laughs> right. It sort of come full circle. Mm-hmm. So you said at the time that that was like your your fifth crop of cane, I think, back in yes. 2020. So I started in, in we, so in 2016 and 2017, it was only Nicholas. And then 2018, we started grinding. So 18 and 19, we were grinding uh, both Ash Grease cane and Nicholas's cane. Okay. And in 2020, we have been only grinding Ash Grease cane. Uh, and what's been happening is we've been taking more and more from Ashford Plantation. In fact, we take, I think, more or less all of the So they're very happy. What they wow. do, what they do in the beginning of the crop, they, they sort of assess the king. The not so good king. They say, all right, right, let's send that to the sugar factory. <laughs> okay, that's good. Yeah. And this, so literally, you know, Michael, the owner, he literally calls you and says, right, you know, I'll be ready for you at whatever date because I'm going to send the first, first couple of weeks of crop. I'm going to crop. I'm going to cut this. Mm-hmm. not so great stuff and send to the factory and then and then I'll, I'll get that out of the way and then I'll start the cutting for you. Kind of the good stuff for rum. So have you been making cane juice rum for several years now then? Yes, but of course it was small. I mean, the, the, the first two years was, you know, we, every year we've done more. So the, the, the first two years were relatively small. Then we, we pretty well jumped it up quite a bit in 18 and 19, but then 20 and 21 even, even bigger still. And so, were, were you, you know, barreling some of that and setting it aside, or you know, what's oh, yes. what, okay? Yes. So, do you see yes. that as being maybe a, a blending component or, or something? Like, do you have? Uh, yeah, we will, we will see the the the, the twenty sixteen stuff. I have a peat at it recently. Uh, I used to peat at it quite a bit in the beginning, but now it's now it's time to leave it alone and let it be. <laughs> but you know that that basically what turned five years. Uh, wow, it will keep going. We, we, mm-hmm. you know, we'll think about what we'll do with it when it gets to about 10 years old or so. We'll oh, wow. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll check. I'll, I'll set a calendar reminder to check back in about four, <laughs> four more years or so. Part um, three. <laughs> yeah, when uh, when you first started working with juice, did you did you just kind of like because I imagine doing it, you know, it's it's I know it's different from working with molasses. Did you just kind of dive right in? Did you call colleagues who work with it regularly like what what did that process look like oh yeah let let, let, let me take a, a step back and, and, and you know why juice and this is and and, and it really explains also why high ester we didn't we, we okay. didn't sit there one day and say okay we're gonna make high ester wrong and in mm-hmm. fact i want to mention how much i hate the name high ester but <laughs> lesser about three evil choices We'll, we'll come back to that because I, I want yeah, to know. Exactly. Yeah. We'll come back to that. I almost cringe every time I say it. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the whole biopsy, the whole pea and juice, the whole flows from a much bigger concept. Today we have this, and I'm sure I think we may have even talked about this in the last one, but today we have this construct where we think rum is either from molasses or rum from juice. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there's this big division. 
and sort of even worse of this division, we think, you know, oh, the rum from juice must be superior to the rum from, mm-hmm. from molasses. And I, I mean, and there are people out there who simply go, oh, I only drink rum, uh, you know, rum or coal or whatever. I don't sure. This. And, and there's nothing wrong with my, you know, my, my friends that are cold. There's nothing wrong with them preferring their rum. Absolutely. But, but it, it's quite new, this division. It really started with the concept of centralization and the French actually were the first with this. And so what I mean is it really starts with rum not being made on a sugar estate. So historically, rum is made on a sugar estate. Right. There's no division between molasses and juice. Both are in the formulation. Mm-hmm. And it varies from a state to a state. It varies from island to island. But what happens in, it starts in Martinique, centralization where we create a central sugar factory. And what happens now that the sugar estate doesn't crush its own cane anymore, it sends to the central sugar factory. So, of mm-hmm. course, if you don't crush your cane anymore, you can't make rum anymore. Right. But with centralization, the sugar factory becomes the birth of the industrial distillery. This is the distillery that is independent of any sugar estate. This is the distillery that's in a city. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. distillery, Distillery can exist because of two things. It can exist because of the column still, so it can scale up mm-hmm. and distill on great scale. And it can now buy in on a great scale lots of molasses because there's a thing called a central sugar factory. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have the analog in Scotland. Green whiskey is whiskey industrial. Mm-hmm. So rum industrial is actually born first before rum agricole. And rum industrial is not called rum industrial because it's molasses. It's not this... Again, there's not this, you know, there's not this division. Oh, you can make it from juice. It's like a cool. No, there's a lot more things in there that just that is juice. Or you know, you know. In other words, there's a nonsensical statement to sort of say, you know, Hamden is making rum industrial. It's the most asinine statement you could come up with because mm-hmm. you know that's a little that's a sugar estate, right? right there's right, not right. an industrial factory, right? Uh, so. This is what happens. So we, we, we've got these two absurdities, which is that rum industrial is because of the raw material. No, rum industrial is because it's a big factory in the city. And, and this was famously in, in Saint-Pierre in Martinique. And Martinique then started to make huge amounts of rum in the 19th century. And of course, it's also assisted by things like the Oxford and all the rest of it. But this is the birth of a very different concept. A, a distillery in the city buys in its molasses. Mm-hmm. What happened when we did Foursquare is we kind of had this sort of anomaly because we went back and resurrected a whole sugar estate, but did this odd thing of buying in molasses. So we Foursquare gets its molasses either imported or from the local sugar factory. Well, when, when Foursquare was first distilling, there were still three sugar factories left in Barbados. And so we would get the molasses in, but, but it wasn't grinded at Foursquare. The motivation to doing this is to reblur that line, not have this notion hmm. that, this, that, that, that you know you're, you or, or, or the even more ridiculous notion that you know that the, the English style rums are from lasses and the French style rums are from uh, sugar cages. And again, this is nonsense because when you look to the French, you know, French agricoles from juice, but French rum industrial from lasses. So again, uh, and then. One of the, sh- the historic sugar estates where, they, you know, Hamden and Longfawn and the hundreds that we've lost, they will use both juice and molasses. Hamden to this day still uses juice and molasses. Right. Yeah. So there's a notion that, you know, the English style of rum is from molasses. It's, it's a nonsense. So this, this, this is this larger motivation is to, to, to bring 
Foursquare back to its its roots and say it is all came from from Keen. Obviously, we had to start with Ashbury because Foursquare for all the listeners, Foursquare is surrounded by Shopkeen, right? But Foursquare, there's there are two entities which were split years ago. So Foursquare historically was a sugar plantation, but the the the, the sugar works of Foursquare was split into a separate company. And Foursquare Plantation continued, and Foursquare Plantation still continues to this day. It surrounds what was Foursquare's factory, mm-hmm. which is what we purchased. So they were split. So we're still surrounded to this day from, by Foursquare Plantation. Why don't we buy the cane from them? It's because they machine cut. They're quite a large sugar estate and, and, and quite sophisticated. And we need the, the hand cut. So we go to, to an estate in St. George, which the lie of the land does not suit machine cut, so they still hand cut. What does that change for you? Like, why why do you prefer hand cut? Because what happens is with the with the machine cut takes the cane and it cuts it into pieces. So the the, the stalk of cane will be about eight pieces, and every end that you create is an end for bacteria to get in and for gumming and lots of problems. So when you make the juice from this machine cut, you, you could potentially have more problems. And a haircut with the two ends. And the other thing with the machine cut is they don't care about all of the, what we call the cane trash or the leaves. Uh, so, you know, even when you see a, a, a cane load head into the factory, you can hardly recognize that there's cane in there because it's so full of every bit of junk. Whereas what we feed into the mill is a clean stock of cane. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's hand cut. They don't always do the best job of cleaning it, but then we clean it. So when you're making sugar, none of that matters. You just process it in and, you know, all of that stuff is going to get filtered out. It's not going to bother your sugar at all, mm-hmm. but it's going to bother my rum fermentation. So, so that's the broad uh, motivation. So then how do you get it with high ester rums? Well, again, what we decided to do with juice is we decided, which was, again, an opportunity, which was to do naturally fermented rums mm-hmm. and naturally fermented rums would always tend to have a higher acidity and would always therefore have a higher ester. The big difference, one of the, well, there's a couple of, couple of few differences, but one of the difference when we sort of post and we, we post a silly number of high ester, you know, the difference of the Jamaicans is the Jamaicans have it down to a, you know, they have it down to a fine art. Mm-hmm. They have it down to a recipe. It's like they want to make L-R-O-K next week. They can mm. set things processed. And now, I should clarify that because one of the things which people don't appreciate is, no, they can't actually just plant in one day. Everything goes very slowly. So they can like, okay, we're making high S. We'll, we'll switch to low ester in a couple of weeks. Everything moves really slowly. Mm. But they certainly do have it down as processed. With some of the high ester rooms we were doing, it's been more of an opportunistic um, situation where cane coming out of the end of your crop it's quite rich in bacteria and, and it's quite rich you know so the juice is very acidic and and so it's a more of an opportunistic thing rather than a routine situation so it's like don't come to me in january and say you know make me the same run, like, do it so all that bacteria and acid is essentially more conducive to the long fermentations yes. and ester so, development so, and things like that. So what I was, yes. So one of the things that, again, today, you know, because of the recipes and the, and the formulation, people forget that 
especially like Jamaica, we're making high ester rums long before anybody called them high ester rums. Right. Or they concerned, they were making rum. Right. Mm-hmm. And eventually they got, you know, the classifications, but anything now on the, on the 300, it was, you know, common clean. And then they had the plumbers and wooden words. Eventually there were the, what they call the continental hyester rounds. And they were called continental hyester rounds because they were strictly for Europe. Uh, Europe was known as the continent. So that's right. why you have the continental in the names. They were very sold in Jamaica. The flavored rums for Germany yeah, and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And they were used for dilution. And even to this day, yeah. notwithstanding the interest, someone like Hamden, they would sell Leros continental hyester rums, would sell more in non-rum than rum. Like perfume and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you ask Ian A. Shear, you know, how do you split your sales of, of these continental high esters? So my point is, is that, yeah, no one sat down to make a high ester rum per se. And I didn't sit down to make a high ester rum. I sat down to make, you know, naturally fermented cane juice rums, some of which will with high esters. Got it. So that's, the question is, is what you call it? <laughs> yeah, I, I want to hear this. So what's the problem with the high ester? Uh, what what hurts you about that? Well, it's the same thing. Okay, so I make rose from king. And the first thing people ask, will you make an agricultural? No, I am not. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it, and the thing is, it, it's not that I wouldn't want to make agricultural. It, it's quite the opposite. It's because I, I certainly don't want to respect my agricultural friends. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want to I don't want them to think that I'm trying to mimic them. So no, because there's far more into our coal than just just using cane juice. Yeah, and you know, once upon a time, and and we're we're a little bit our own selves to blame for this because once upon a time we would use those words interchangeably because you know every single cane juice room was agricultural. Now you have all these people doing different cane juice. So right. now we make this distinction, and but we. We almost set ourselves up for that mistake. So that's the thing. And then the same problem then comes, you know, if I say I'm making a high estimate, oh, you're making the you know, Jamaica Jamaican rum. rum. Yeah. Not yeah. making the Jamaica rum. Yeah. So kind of the, the old fashioned name might have been, when I say old fashioned, the kind of distinction of the last several years might have been to say, okay, I'm making a hip rum because, you know, it was my name is rum and then many, many columns stills and, and added yeast and then, then created this notion of a, of a light rum. So then, you know, we tended to refer to, to things like pot still rum as heavy rums or, or you know, like heavy carity, you know, carity. Right, right. Yeah, that was what was, was coming to mind for me. Yeah. One of the things that people don't realize is that which carity was an operation, the vast majority of what they made was light rum. So carity had a multi column still, which banged mm-hmm. out the light rum, and then they had this separate single column still banged out the heavy round. Of course, all of the light rum um, disappeared. You know, when the place was closed, all that stock was gone. It's this heavy rum stock that, you know, is used, well, was always historically used so sparingly. So, so in a sense, the correct terminology would be to say to you, I'm making a heavy rum. But today, we associate a heavy rum with these Karenese and Sanacorps taste-wise, it's nowhere Completely near. Completely different, like yeah. Hmm. Saying my ester was kind of the lesser of the three <laughs> bad choices. Heavy ester doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah. But it is not a Jamaican-style rum. Obviously, there is overlap, because if you look at some Jamaican rums are naturally fermented, but not all Jamaican rums are naturally fermented. And right. You go through, you know, and, and taste some Jamaican, you know, from um, 
you know, Appleton or whatever. And, and, and you know, they're, they're unmistakably Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have used Adidas. Uh, I think that's one of the cool things to me learning more about rum, though, is you realize from a production standpoint, there can be all these different paths that yes. different distilleries in the same country might take. And yet they right. still arrive at a profile or a signature, a style that is like, like you said, like Appleton, you have it. It's there's characteristics about it that are unmistakably Jamaican. You know, I, I readily say that the Barbados current, what we call the Barbados rum, so largely developed around the turn of the 20th century because of the influence of column still centralization. And more or less, all of the changes through rum, you know, we love to have this romantic interest of creativity, but really, you know, rum for most of its years and, and is a commodity. And yeah. most of the changes in rum are driven by um, economics. Survival. Exactly. So, you know, rum agricole is born out of survival. It's born out of the shock to the system of, of centralization. And how do we survive? The arrival of the column still, you know, is about efficiency. You know, how do we, how mm-hmm. do we, everything added yeast, everything. So it's the social and economic factors that have driven the changes. It's not someone sitting down one day and thinking, oh, I think I'll try and make rum this way. As much as we like to romanticize that, um, you know, the Creole column, you know, in agricole is there because, you know, your juice, you want to distill your juice pretty quickly. It's not, you know, so you want, you need something that's more efficient than in, in terms of speed than the, than the, the pot still, but you also want something to give you the quality. And in other words, the coffee still would not have suited them. Mm-hmm. And the Creole column still is, is like that perfect, tool for them, giving them what they need. And so it's, as they say, it's all of these things are largely driven, you know, the history, which for me is much more interesting. I mean, it's vastly more interesting to understand the social and the economic dynamics that drive these changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah like the external that, things. Yeah, then just, you know, someone deciding, hey, I'm going to try a different barrel or something. <laughs> so you have this idea. You're saying, I- I- I'm going to make this, uh, for lack of a better term, high ester rum. and Na- Natural fermentation. Yes. That's yes. the yeah. emphasis, right? Did yeah, this... so in other words, what happened is, here I have this different raw material, and what can I do with this raw material that's not, well, I said it's not so suited for Right. And that's natural fermentation. And it's not that natural molasses is impossible to do natural fermentation, but w- one of the things that when molasses leaves the factory, it's kind of in a sort of almost sterile state and it becomes much more difficult to carry out uh, natural fermentation. Right. Did the, the rest of the process kind of spring out of your head like the goddess Athena all at once? Or did you have to figure out and say, okay, how are we going to do yeah, this? And, I mean, and- so one of the, the sort of the, the stories I, I say about it quite amusingly true is, you know, I've been doing molasses fermentation with yeast for, you know, 25 years. And so I kind of had this idea that I knew a bit about fermentation and, um, you know, I, I was a bit of an expert. And then when I started doing actual fermentation, I realized I knew fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> happens to me what every day. fuck all about yeast? And yeah. And so it really, yeah, I mean, it's a total... As they say, it really sort of sends you back to the drawing board. Mm-hmm. What 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 is it about it that makes it so different? Well, the yeast are different in every crop. They're different in the month. Uh, the cane can be different, so the different acidity levels and the yeast can behave differently. And then that's where we can talk about the Saccharomyces and Espombe because they behave differently. And you right. you know you need Espombe, and when you don't have it or enough of it, it's a problem. So, yeah, in other words, so sometimes I like to say, 
I like to put, look at it from a different perspective. And he meant that I'm a distiller of, of natural fermentations. And along comes a salesman <laughs> and says, I've got this magic stuff. You just add it in and you're going to get a consistent result. You're going to get a consistent yield. Right. Everything's going to be really predictable now. Consistent flavor. Well, obviously, you're going to just go bananas. Life with is joy. easy. Yeah. So you realize why the directions that, you know, spirit making went in. Or even think back to the brewers. You know, brewers, you know, they couldn't select their yeast. And, you know, some yeast gave a cloudy bear and some yeast gave a sour bear. And, mm-hmm. and you know, then yeast selection comes in. It's eureka. Yeah. So, so the funny thing about, about doing the natural fermentation is you then kind of realize, you know, how wonderful it was when the guy turned up and said, I have this cultured yeast for you. Why don't you pitch this, pitch this added yeast, you know, and your accountants will love you because suddenly <laughs> now you can predict the yield. And, uh, so yeah, so that again, so it comes back again to opportunities because one of the problems with doing what we're doing it's quite small scale, clean and keen. It's natural. It's, you know, it's very, very expensive. And so therefore you cannot even conceive of doing this unless you know you have the ability to, you know, put a bottle of rum on the shelf for a hundred dollars or something like that. So, you know, 10 years ago, you know, you might've said to me, why don't we do some natural juice fermentation rooms? And I would have thought that's a fabulous idea, but it's financially impossible. Mm-hmm. As 10 or 15 years ago, I might have been struggling to sell a $25 bottle of rum, you know, dare not age too long. Right. So it's, as you say, that's, you know, yeah, okay, yes, juice is different, but I do try to emphasize that um, it's not that rum is fundamentally changing, it's just we have the opportunity. So, you know, we obviously always had cash strength rum, we just didn't sell it as cash strength. Obviously, you know, we have pot still rum, I mean, uh, but you know, today we use more of it. So, and always, you know, we always had the ability in theory to age rum for 12 or 13 or 14 years. Yeah. But you know, back in the bad old 1970s, it was very hard to conceive, <laughs> you know, as they say, we went the reverse and we had really wonderful old rums to the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Right. And by the 1970s, a lot of them had disappeared. You're just trying to stay, stay in alive in the 1970s. Yeah. So I had to do so, it. Sorry. <laughs> and now we're seeing the reverse. So, you know, we were missing some of these really old rums in the 70s, 80s, to extend in the 90s. And now, because people, you know, rums have been doing really well in the last 10, 15 years. So people are now saying, okay, yeah, I can keep that. I can keep that 12 year old stuff a little longer. There's an opportunity now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's great. And and so doing the, they say, doing the K-Juice is about a situation of, of recognizing. The, the opportunities are there. We we should probably establish, by the way, what exactly is in this high ester rum because it's not it's not just juice, as I understand it. There's some Correct. molasses rum in here that goes Correct. through the, a different fermentation process. So, can, can you kind of talk people through, you know, what the makeup of the rum well, is? It's, and, a, it's, a, it's a blend, mm-hmm. and there are it's all hundred percent pot still. It's all hundred percent Barbados Shaky. Okay. Okay. But there are some rums, so purely molasses. There are some cane juice rums. And then there are cane juice rums with very extreme ester that were made at the end of crop, compartmentalized off, 
and used for blending. And so what we did is we made it a small batch because obviously we blend and barrel the stuff all of And we said, okay, just for fun, we're going to release 600 bottles of this blend. So it ends up with a, with a, with a, um, IS account. And again, I'm, I'm using some sort of Jamaica scale. So basically in Jamaica, anything over 300 is technically a highest around because under 300 is coming clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, I haven't tested it, but I think it's about 600. Okay. That's, I was kind of thinking it was probably somewhere in that, I don't like four to 700 type range. Cause, yeah. Yeah. cause it's got that, that pungency to it. Mm-hmm. And, but, but, you know, it's it's not the upper upper kind of. No, I mean, so if you, if you so again use the Jamaicans as a reference, the kind of the highest naturally fermented rums they would do with those plumbers and Wedderburns going up to that six or seven hundred, and then the Continentals, but they're the silly you know thousand plus. <laughs> so I did not. It would have been extremely unlikely that I would release a blend sort of higher than those plumbers and red and burdens because they're they're the they're the highest of that are still very drinkable. And this is an important point which I think gets lost. Normally dilution of course is your enemy, but when you get those very highest runs, their real power comes out with dilution. Hmm. Why they're in use in this way. So when I do a run here about six hundred or whatever, you can drink it straight. And you won't necessarily, I mean, you can dilute it, obviously, but it's not going to improve the dilution. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you start getting very high, the rums improve for the dilution, which is antithetical to everything we normally, I mean, not too much dilution, obviously. But that's what's so powerful about those continental ester rums. Mm-hmm. They're, they're magic in dilution. So, yeah, so, so the idea really here is, yeah, I mean, 600 bottles, people are going to do, you know, some, make a mix to drink, but it's fully drink it neat and it's fine you can do whatever however you wish to enjoy it yeah i mean john and i are both sitting here drinking it neat right now right yep i mean really enjoy i before you got on i was talking to john i was like i don't is it is it crazy for me to say because obviously this fact is somewhat implanted in my brain by knowing what this is and where it came from but i was like is it crazy to say that there's there's something here, even though this is completely different from anything I've ever had from Foursquare, there's something kind of Foursquare-ish about it. Absolutely. (laughs) A little bit of a signature, kind of like the bottom end of it. This is one of the things that's very important to us. And it really comes down to what your philosophy is and what your approach is. You know, doing the style that you want to do. You know, what you like. I've given this story a couple of times and maybe I give it last. And I remember I had this conversation. So I was approached by a very large spirit company, very successful, but tended to be lower in high volume product. Mm-hmm. And so they were getting into the to, to, to rum and they were you know talking with distilleries and of course, you know, we weren't the right partner for them. But they you know, they said very proudly still, you know, we do all our research, we do all our focus groups, we find exactly what the consumer want, and that's what we do. With every mission to be, I looked at them and said, oh, I do the complete opposite. <laughs> I said, I make what I like and then see if I can find someone who, who has the same taste. You know? uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I would almost dare to say this is this is high ester rum as you might expect Foursquare would do it. And, you, yeah. you know, Foursquare is going to do it differently to, to him or Long Pond or whoever. For sure. Because they're them and we are us and we have a different. You know, everyone has, you know, I was having a conversation 
just yesterday with a very prominent member of our industry and he wanted some advice on, on sales. And I was trying to basically say to him, it's not my, it, it, you need to kind of go, it's okay for you to go with your philosophies. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it, it's not necessary for you to, I mean, I gave up some advice, but it, it, right. it's not a situation where since I like X, Y, Z, you should like X, Y, Z. I mean, I'll give you an example. It wasn't, it's not the example, but it, it cause I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much. Of the conversation. <laughs> sure. But, you know, if, if you said to me, you know, sort of worm tub or shell and chew heat exchanger, well, I'm going to say shell and chew heat exchanger. If you look at four square rooms, they're very elegant and soft and go to those skis that are still done in worm tubs and they're meaty and sulfury and rough. And But if that's what you like, right, then you should worm tub. Yeah. Don't ask me because I like something different. Yeah. So you're going to get the four square answer. Right. So, you know, one of the things about the highest to run is, of course, it's very soft and very drinkable. And again, because that's very much what we try to do. It doesn't feel like a 62% to me. Exactly. No. And, and that's harder to do with a highest and run than a regular run because, of course, you have to have a lot of acidity. You have to distill it in such a way that you try not to get some of those semi-volatile acids to come over into your room. Is that where, does does the molasses component help with that as well? Uh, yes. So in other words, doing a blend helps with that because obviously the high ester rums will, will definitely be a little sharper. So the beauty of doing the blend, yes, absolutely. And, and just just to clarify, to make sure I'm understanding, so this, this blend that we're drinking, this is the one that Velier is releasing, is that correct? It's the same same blend? Yes, um, let me see. Hang on a minute. I put, yes, because I took it from the tank that's to be bottled. We haven't bottled it yet. Uh-huh. I was just trying to think, because initially, like, when I sent samples, I just made a quick lab sample of the blend. But this is the one I showed off at BRE, the Barbers Room Experience. Right. And I took it from the actual tank of 90% circle. <laughs> yeah, so it should be exactly the same. Okay. And is this one, you kind of mentioned, it sounded, I was interpreting it as you have several different types of cane juice rum you've made at varying ester levels. Um, I may have misinterpreted, but does this blend, is this blend just one of those cane juice rums or is it multiple different levels? This is a particular one selected at the end of season and distilled separately and put separately and then that's used as a blending component. So that there's a there's a specific rum in there that we only make a very small amount, uh, and but is the you know key element of this particular rum. Yes, gotcha. uh, not not to try to confuse you too much, but basically at the end of crop there's some as I say there's some opportunities presented, uh, and we we go about and make a slightly different. Uh, but all of the key juice rums we classify. As you know, high ester because it's just their niche. Okay, got it. It's very hard to make a naturally fermented rum full of bacteria and acidity, and then expect them, you're not going to have a very high level of esters. Hmm. It just runs nature. Hmm. What are kind of the future plans for, um, again, for lack of a better term, high ester <laughs> production uh, at Foursquare going forward? Do you see this, like, or do you plan to make more? Are you aging oh, yeah. any of so it? Every, so basically every year we are making cage juice. 
full-bodied, you know, heavy change of shrams, let's use that term. But we're also making a small amount of these very high ester ones, which have then gone into different blends. Yeah, I mean, the majority... So, shit, not to confuse you too much. So, you've got your columns still. Let's put that out of the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then you've got your molasses, potch, still rums, you know, your sort of regular fermentation. Right. So, you know, they're not exactly low ester either. I mean, they've right. got, I mean, it's rum. I mm-hmm. mean, rum immediately has a, you know, a, a decent ester count you know, compared to, you know, things like scotch whiskey or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your sort of mainstream K juice rums, but they're a step up. Because they're naturally fermented. And then there's this, there's this high ester rum in which we've made a couple of batches and used for blending. Do you ever see releasing any of that on its own? I know people no. will be asking for it. No. Again, it comes back to the power of bringing out the best of it. So, you know, the highest ester rum we've made was, I think, 1900. Oh, wow. But the power of that rum mm. comes out in the blend, mm-hmm. not in that rum straight. You you shoot yourself in the foot if you drink that straight mm. or or do with that straight. The magic of that comes when you blend it. The magic mm. and the power in that rum. I, I want to go back to the yeast for a second. So I know in 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 this one uh, in the bottle it does say it was. Uh, cultured and natural yeast that are used. And you mentioned Espombe uh, already once. We recently had uh, Stephen Schellenberger from Boston Apothecary yes. on the podcast. He spoke a lot about the high potential of the Espombe or that fish and yeast in rum production. I-, I know I've seen some comments from you online that you kind of acknowledged it, that it plays some role, but also kind of had the idea of like, I, I think you were saying it's not really that remarkable. So I wanted to just no. get a little bit more from you about that. So there are two, two myths that sort of come about with Espombe. And, you know, just to maybe take a step back, you know, what happened around the turn of the century, it was about 1903 or something, Jamaicans created this special fermentation laboratory and they wanted to do all this, this work in it. Mm-hmm. And really kind of approved the, the rum making and nutritiency. And the first, first man in there was Charles, Charles Allen. And he did some fantastic work. And then he, he was followed by um, S.S. Ashby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before all of that, a lot of the guys that wish the, with, with, you know, talking about S, they talk about the work of um, Percival Gregg. Because Gregg went up to the laboratory up in Copenhagen where one of the big bears in, 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 you know, isolating and purifying yeast and, and that um, Hansen, um, Professor Hansen was there. So, so Greg became very much influenced by, by this notion of what was happening in the breweries that, you know, that, um, you know yeast could, should be selected and, and you should use this pure yeast and you should add this yeast. And so all magical stuff for, for, for the brewers. And then, so Greg was very much kind of this, this, this he sort of, wet this appetite of this thinking back in Jamaica. And one of the things he wanted to do was to select, because he'd done this test, he'd done this test, and, and in the star of his show, so he's doing it in Copenhagen, these, these, you know, the first time people are selecting a yeast strain and kind of fermentation. And, and one of the star of his his, his experiments, where it was a, an Esplombe, a fishing yeast, so of he became very, very fascinated in, in the idea of not just merely selecting a yeast, but selecting a fission yeast. Right. But even in his own experiments, when he didn't use thunder, his fission yeast was flat. Mm. 
So there's all immediately, even though Greg is super enthusiastic about it, there's a caveat immediately in his work. Okay. But Alan and Ashby then continued on, and they were the ones, particularly Alan, who basically said, because at this time, this, 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 as they say, this is a tremendous era of understanding of yeast. We were, we're right behind sort of Pasteur, who's telling us that yeast is living, you know, but, you know, you go back a few years before yeast is seen as a yeast is not a lie, it's a chemical right, process. Right. And, and 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 you know, Pasteur comes and shows, no, no, it's a biological process because you know yeast is alive. And then, oh my god, I forget the man, he won the Nobel Prize, he has an odd name, begins with a B, I forget. But then he showed it, no, in your post <laughs> it's a biochemical process. Because what he did is he took the liquid out of the yeast cell and found it could still ferment. So he basically put ferment from a dead yeast cell. So he showed it really oh, wow. was a chemical reaction inside a living organism. Huh. So it's, it's biochemistry. It's not just, it's not chemistry. It's not biology. It's biochemistry. So they, this is all happening in, in this period. I mean, this is, you know, he won the Nobel Prize, I think, you know, five or something for that. And so this is a lot of exciting time. Yes, that's the medium. <laughs> I, I looked up your article and just oh, okay. <laughs> I did a control F for a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Edward, Edward McFinner, yes. Um, <laughs> but Charles Allen, so Charles Allen comes along and he, and he writes and says, look, I don't understand yeast is a big deal for the brewer. But no, it's not. The maker rum flavor comes from the bacteria. Hmm. So he really shoots this whole thing down and has a radical way of thinking. And Ashby really continues this and really shows, yeah, you know, he um, does some experiments with the fish and yeast and says, it's rum is shit because he's doing really sterile thing. But what Ashby does show, and I can't remember if I've hinted at it already, but certainly Ashby does a great work on this. And he basically shows, ah, but this fission yeast works in the acidic washes. Right. So when you get Saccharomyces goes and done you because there's too much acidity, Escombe mm-hmm. rolls along. And it rolls along very slowly. So this gives the bacteria even mm-hmm. more opportunity. So what really happens is, is you get, and, and, and we can see this at, at, at Foursquare, it's, it's just quite wonderful. You, you, you get a fermentation and it starts off. And, and, and it's Saccharomyces doing the work, so it's racing along. Right. Saccharomyces is the sugar fungus. It's the machine. It pro- mm-hmm. It's evolved to produce alcohol to kill its rivals. Okay, Got that, it. That's okay. why it rapidly produces Saccharomyces yeast. That's, that's what it does. And it's a budding yeast, right? Yeah, it, it's a budding yeast, so it multiplies quickly and it... it it, it works rapidly and it, and that's what it's evolved to do because it's evolved to kill the competing yeasts. Yeah. But what happens is, is that when the acidity rises, it quits. It can't handle it. But Palm Bay, it can. And, but Palm Bay works very slowly. So it does produce alcohol, but very slowly. So what happens is, is when you get this wonderful working in tandem, you end up with a respectable yield but a wonderfully flavorful product because you end up producing overall this acidity and you get some reaction of production of these esters. So it plays a role, but it's not a direct role. So, that, so let me let me explain. There's two myths about Palmbay. There's two myths. Um, the first myth is the idea that it's it, it it's lost, that it's not used in rum anymore. And, you know, you read okay. the, I'm going to bring it back. 
Okay. And of course, this is a very dangerous myth because I've already, we've already seen certain individuals, not, not, not Stephen, but, you know, who like to present themselves as the great saviors of Western mm-hmm. Rum. You know, we're going to bring Palm Bay back. Mm. Yeah, you'll probably know who I mean. Um, so no, Palm Bay never left. It, it never left. Don't call it a comeback. Got it. Yeah. And then, <laughs> Don't and call then, it a and, comeback. Yeah. It, and then, and then the second, now, of course, you can argue it's, it's less important or, or it's less prevalent because, mm. you know, it's still there in Jamaica, but, but you know, the share of sort of highest to Jamaican rum is the, of the global rum market, of course, is, is you know, mm-hmm. is, is, you know mm-hmm. we're drinking loads, you know, the world is drinking loads of, of light rum. You know, Bacardi really didn't take off for around 1916 or so. So, right. Right, so the relevance of S. Palombe around 1900 is very different to the relevance of S. Palombe circa 2020. Okay. But it's not gone. It's not last. You could see it still there in Hamden. And of course, it's actually present. I mean, there was a, a wonderful um, PhD thesis published in 2015, uh, and it was work on all the microflora in Australian distilleries. Mm, and yeah. sure enough, Estelle Babe was there. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Stephen mentioned so, that one. Yeah, so mm-hmm. great confirmation that it's very much right. And you can see it under my microscope at Forster. Uh, I must put some pictures up. The trouble is electron microscope pictures of, of S-Bombay and my under the lab of actual <laughs> real world yeah. juice. Pales. Not quite as, yeah. not quite as good. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so the so Bombay is there. So you know, And then the second myth, again, relates very much to whether you sort of read the word of Bray or you read the word of Alan and this notion that there's some holy grail single strain of Espalme and you're going to add this into your fermentation and poof, you're going to make the greatest rum ever made. No, that is not going to happen. Hmm. Why, why did they believe, or why did one of them believe that? Well, because of Greg and, and another, so hitters Greg and, they, they, you know, literally in Copenhagen, you know, got 10 or 12 samples out and he's put in these different strains of yeast in. And, you know, he's, I can't remember which number, but one of them is magical. But he does further experiments where he doesn't add dunder. Mm. And he finds shit. Yeah, he, right. He doesn't, you know, the dunder is a, is a big part of this equation. Yeah. So he, 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 even in his work, if you dig, you can see, no, it's not just the yeast. And, and that's really what Alan and Ashby are trying to tell you. Alan is basically trying to tell you, listen, the bacteria is king. And when you look at spirits, you can see this pendulum. So that, again, if you read my articles, this is one of these things that, that you know, again, Alan described this very well. And he basically said, look, you, you send them a fermentation. You can either set up the fermentation to favor yeast or favor bacteria. He said, you need yield, so you want to favor yeast. But if you favor yeast, you're going to lose some flavor. Mm-hmm. If you favor bacteria, you're going to use some, you know, you're going to lose some, some yield. He said, you've got to strike a middle ground. Mm. This, this is what you do. And, and we see that when you look at every category, you can look, you can see that. So if you look at sort of the brewers or winemakers, you know, they're absolutely favoring yeast. They don't want any bacteria in the beer. You know, the yeast is king. The yeast, you know, literally drives the, the flavor. Mm-hmm. But when you go to somewhere, like take my our natural fermentations or whatever, we don't add any yeast at all. And what really, really matters is the 
the bacteria. So the pendulum swung completely. But you can look at something like Scotch whiskey. And again, you can see the pendulum is, it's yeast, but it's not fully yeast because you, you can, there's certain Scotch whiskeys, you know, they, the 72 hour fermentation. Right. And, you know, there's research now showing, well, lactobacillus is now active. Um, despite the alcohol content and, and that's affecting, you know, the flavor of this whiskey. So because, you know, the, the, the wort in, in, in scotch is not fully sterile. So, so you have something like scotch whiskey where, yeah, bacteria is playing a role. Uh, it's not playing a bigger role as, as, as you in know, rum. say, Jamaica, yeah, in, yeah. in, in some rooms. But again, you can also see an example. I remember in, in the Miami uh, rum fest, you know, was, we were talking, I was doing a panel with Roberta Sterales. Mm-hmm. They were talking about fermentation. And Roberta said, look, we sterilize the rums. Because the style of rum they want, they want the yeast. Plays a dominant them. role. Yeah. yeah. So he has to, you know, sterilize to get mm. his yeast to be in total control of the flavor. Right. Right. So you see this pendulum swinging depending on the spirit category. Right. And as they say, Alan was very, he was, he was the first for this notion that, you know, forget me. And of course, one of the things he was also trying to make the point was, and this was interesting, you know, he basically said the yeast is more important in something like a fermented product, like beer. In other words, you, you picked up the subtle differences of the yeast. Mm. But when you distilled because it, because it's not distilled, yeah. He was trying to say no. Then that doesn't become as important as obviously the flavors from from the bacteria. So it's, it's very interesting to, to to read him. And yeah, of course, and and then as he asked me, really followed on 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 from him. So no, I, yeah, I think it's just those two myths that I think I prefer. They 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 went right. to you know, at all days there is very important. Right. Uh, you know, my God, we'd missed it if it wasn't. <laughs> but it's not. It's not a panacea. It's not a right. It's not. A, oops, I'll add it in. And, oof, it it sounds like it's high, It's dependent on the context, right? Yeah, the other things happening. And I think, I th- my understanding, what Stephen's fascination is coming from the idea of the role it can play in something like Arroyo's high pH process. Um, which I won't pretend that I understand all of this stuff, but that was uh, <laughs> that was my interpretation of it. But I think to me, this is um, I, you know it's just talking about the different philosophies, different approaches with you know someone like yes, Sarah, Sarah Yates. Um, it's it's what makes rum yeah, so. You see, and that's a very important point that you know everyone's not trying to make the same thing exactly. Right. Yeah. So one man's magical yeast may not mean much to someone else. It doesn't, you know, I, I've always stressed this and, and, and I'll give you the example of Foursquare. You can visit two distillers and get two different answers to the same question and neither are wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, one of the ways I tease this is to say that if you come to the molasses section of Foursquare, just to the south, and you ask, let's say, you, you know, you ask someone to charge molasses from or, or, or I'm wearing my molasses hat. You said to me, well, is yeast matter or terror matter? I told you, yeah, it's not important at all. And then if you met me in the north section of Foursquare in the cane juice natural fermentation, and got the juice said, hat on. <laughs> Suddenly I would tell you, I'm absolutely torn, <laughs> the most important thing in the whole world in the yeast, and two different answers. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and you can do that with Scotch whiskey and bourbon whiskey. Yeah, you know, I mean, Scots now are more 
sort of big on yeast in recent years, but, you yeah. know, with the time you could go to Scotland and ask the guys about yeast and it'd be like, yeast? Who cares about yeast? <laughs> we'll call that the uh, Richard Seal quantum state of superposition, where you can <laughs> give both answers that are both correct. Uh, and it really comes back to, 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 to your philosophy and what you're wanting to make. But it also, as they say, I think sometimes we are seduced with easy answers to to difficult challenges. And I think Mm -hmm. we want to believe that there's a magical yeast that has been lost. And if we just find it again, uh, we'll make great. No, um, that's a a, a great movie, but... (laughs) <laughs> I'm writing the script right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on that. A little more complex. But yeah, I, so my challenge, of course, would be yeah, is how do I say in one sense, no, it, it, it's, it's not that big a deal, but but emphasize, yes, it is also a very big deal because it basically allows things to happen in the fermentation that you simply could not do Saccharomyces alone. Right. Right. If you have Saccharomyces alone, it's going to raise alone, it's going to produce loads of alcohol, and then the alcohol is going to semi-sterilize the wash, and you're just not going to get the same flavor development as you get when you have Saccharomyces and Esfambe working in tandem. Mm-hmm. But you can't just say, because of that, oh my goodness, I'm just going to cultivate a strain of Esfambe and put it in, it's going to be nibble. Yeah. You have to realize that it's, mm. it's the symbiotic relationship between the two yeasts and the bacteria uh, that when you get that right, you get this, this really excellent result. And one of the things that Jamaicans observe is, you know, again, this beautiful, big, fatty head on top. And, and so one of the things you will notice when you come to the forest square with our teachers because we do the cane juice fermentations are, are natural and they're slow and take several weeks. They're open and you can, you know, you can stick your head over them. You know, you can't, if you did that in elastic fermentation, you'd, you'd be dead because, you know, <laughs> they're rapid and the CO2 is coming off rapid. You cannot stick your head in molasses. You can do it, but only once. Yes, you, you, will, you, you will collapse. But the beauty of the, the, the cane juice ones is if you walk into my changer's room and the smell is unbelievable. I mean, it's like walking into a fruit orchard. It's mm. just spectacular. And even the BRE tour, which was November, which was several weeks after we finished, we distilled down to about August, uh, fermented down to about August. And, and they, they got those were the, those guys were there the first week of November. They could still smell in the room. Wow. They'll smell. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, without that symbiotic way in which those yeasts work, you would not get as rich and as fruity a, a flavor. It wouldn't. So, yeah. you know, my, so my role to you is to say, yes, Esbome is very important, but maybe not in the, in the simple way that, that some marketeers uh, will now try to exploit. Sure, because that, that's not fair. I, I, right, I mean, it is the first label of rum to say we made this with Bombay. It's the greatest thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I was expecting to see exactly that on the back label when it comes out. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that that that's that's coming, and you know, and and the, and the story will be, you know, we resurrected this this you know yeast lost and you know found in a vault, mm-hmm. some bullshit like that. 
So you mentioned the Barbados rum experience. That's where the the samples that we received came from. Uh, I know that took place for the first time in November. How how did that all come come together? And looking back at it now, what were kind of some of the highlights of being able to do something like that for the first time? So the inspiration for that actually came April 2018. I think it's 2018. Yeah. We had this wonderful visit where all of these rum enthusiasts literally got together on the internet. Just, you know, people who physically haven't met, but have met through rum groups. And I think it started first with the American side, and then they started moving some of the European connections. And long, long story short, they basically agreed, let's all visit Forest Square in April. Mm-hmm. And most of them stayed in one hotel. And so what we did is we then organized, obviously, a lovely tour. But then we, we said, okay, now we'll put on some events. And I think we put on a, a dinner and I think we put on a lunch. And then we helped them coordinate their visits to, to Mount Gay and Nicholas. So everything was paid for by them. I mean, we, you know, we obviously put on a tour and we... we you we, gave we, them a hand. We, yeah, we put on some, you know, as they say, uh, we did a... We did a couple of a couple of events, which we you know see we would have paid for some dinners and stuff. But you know they they you know they paid their you know their hotel and everything. So they basically coordinated their holidays all together. That's the power of rum. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely, so the bar of the mission was to kind of recreate that instead of everyone visiting us at separate times. Yeah, yeah. everybody was together. And the other part of that was well, let's you know let's make this proper experience. Mm-hmm. Let's go another level. Mm-hmm. And so you might say the other inspiration would have been, say, you know, you, you see everyone set up New Orleans for the Tales of the Cocktail and you have a whole week of seminars. So let's have a whole week of, of seminars. And the seminars are not, you know, there's going to be brand events, but the seminars are going to be educational. So we're going to educate you not just on rum, but we're going to educate you on Barbados. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, it went absolutely brilliant. People loved it and got the feedback that we wanted. People said, no, you know, I can't. You know, we, we had some of the most wonderful endorsements, which we'll, we'll post on the page through the year as we promote the second one. But we had the scene of these endorsements. Like, you know, I came expecting a rum tour and I ended up learning so much about Barbados. You had, I mean, you had some big time scholars and things like that doing presentations. Right, exactly. The idea with the seminars was, you know, they weren't, you know, as I said, there were events, you know, uh, um, you know, Mount Gay put on a spectacular dinner at one of the, 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 the things that the idea with the seminars is, is they wouldn't be branded per se. I mean, mine, mm-hmm. I did two and one was a, a brand one, if you like, because it was what we're doing at Foursquare, but right. it was what we were doing at Foursquare in the historical context. So, you know, I talked about our new double retort still, but I explained why in Barbados we use double retired pots to limit through the history of it and that kind of thing. So the idea really was is you, you yes, I talked about four square, but you learn. The other seminar I did was on origins. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't mention a single brand at all. I just, the origins is a subject that I only get to sort of briefly mention in other seminars. You know, we do, if I do a history of Barbados Rome, you can only spend, you know, the five minutes on the, the origin. Here I, I could spend a whole seminar on origins and could look at all the competing claims, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was brilliant. I mean, I really enjoyed doing that one. So yeah, I mean, the, 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 and, and the idea was, again, we'd have a central hotel 
everyone stayed there. Uh, you don't have to. So, so the what you do with the event can be broken down. You, 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 the package doesn't include the hotel. You book the hotel. Obviously, we get a discount rate, right? Um, and then you, you know, you can buy a package with everything, or you can buy just tours only, or mm-hmm. you know, seminars only. But most people went for the you know the full package. And so basically, what the package was is you got to attend all the seminars and you got the transport to those tours. But and the tours were special tailored tours that were not the average, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. tour that you get. So, you know, it, it was a spectacular success. It really was. Yeah, well, I, I know John and I both heard great things from people who uh, who, who were... Attended, yeah. Yeah, who were able to make it there. Um, so And made us insanely jealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so <laughs> penciling in our future plans now. It was a real trial. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're hoping next year we won't have that because, you know, that was, and, and we, you know, the, the COVID unit were you know, vigilant on us. And of course, not that we wanted to try and get rid of anything, but, but the point is, you know, sometimes you might make a mistake or whatever. Right. You know, right. And of course, all of the crew were very supportive of that. They knew, you know, we had to, you know, mask wearing, mm-hmm. you know, all the seminars. <laughs> like when I was doing the seminar, in my first one, I kept walking too close to the audience so they had to come and go, no, you need to stay. Uh, do not cry. Let's, we put a little yeah, put a little tape. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, do not cross this way yeah. into the audience. Um, but yeah, so COVID just, you know, added another dimension to yeah. challenges. I, I think it, in a way, though, it also makes those events feel a little more special. Uh, because it's kind of like the first time people have been able to do stuff like that, traveling together and things. So I know yes. a couple a couple of the rum festivals that I made it to in the U.S. Uh, in this sort of kind of post-COVID reality, um, that was the feeling of, yeah, there's protocols in place, we're wearing masks, but man, this feels great to be, to right. be together yes. again. No, no, and we know probably some people simply didn't come because people don't want to travel in this COVID. So, you know, we're already hoping for... A, I mean, and, and it should work out because one of the things that this year is, is because of the rooms, they had to space people out. The rooms had less capacity. So that meant we had less spaces we could right. sell. Right. So what I'm hoping is, is next year we can have more space. And of course, we will be able to sell more. Yeah. Bigger and better. better. Yeah, exactly. You like hear that, that. Will? <laughs> Richard just said we got to come next year. Right? Yeah. There's, there's space, there's space I mean, for it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I tell you this in absolute honesty. If you, if, you know, if you really want to visit, if you really want to go on a rum distillery visit, there's, you will not get the same experience on your own because you're going to visit all three. You're going to be there with other rum enthusiasts, and and again, we do an education, not just on. Rum, but on Barbados, right? But it, it's it's linked with the rum. In other words, the idea is, is that you're going to come away really appreciating Barbados and mm. understanding how the special parts of Barbados are linked to the rum. Yeah, because one of the things I mean, I love to explain in my my origins seminar is you know it we don't understand how back in the 1600s how certain things mattered or made the difference between having an industry and not having an industry. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, you know, Barbados having really excellent supply of water compared to the other islands. That literally makes a difference mm. between existing and not existing. 
and, you know, things that we would take for granted now. And so one of the things I, you know, I love to explain in the origin seminars is the sort of serendipitous um, things that allowed a rum industry to be born. Um, because, you know, we tend to think in modern sense today, you can just go and make an industry anywhere. But in the, in the 1600s, you had to have certain things fall into place for you, for these things to, to happen. Well, speaking of uh, history and, and cultural significance, uh, we're recording this on December 15th, and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Barbados became a republic. Yes. And you all elected the island's first ever president, I know, recently as well. So I know that's just in the rearview mirror, but I also understand it's like decades in the making. So, yes. yeah, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are for, for yourself and for the people of Barbados at this time. And then does that change anything for you at Foursquare at all? No, uh, so... So basically, I mean, we've always been a, 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 arguably a republic. What yeah. I mean is, you, in other words, the, the queen has never had any, any we've had, no never age. had a power from the monarchy since we're independent. But mm-hmm. when, when we became independent in 1966, there were a couple of institutions that were retained. One was, was the, our sort of highest court of a, a appeal was still the House of Lords back in, in the UK. Okay. And one was, of course, having the queen as the head of state. Mm. I'm not an expert on the, the thinking of the, of why those were retained, but you have to imagine, you know, the independence. I mean, it, even then, the independence was quite relatively symbolic because we'd been self-governed from about the 50s. So, that, so that, you know, 1966, we make this, you know, officially independent, but we were already right. self-governed. So it wasn't like on 1966, someone handed over government to us. We were ready to... But 66, we make the break. We are now an independent country. We're not a colony anymore. But for various reasons, as they say, and, and I think quite clever because, you know, if you can make that big change, but smooth it with a few um, uh, small institutions. Things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so right. we eventually changed the, the judiciary. Now there's a Caribbean Court of Appeal. Mm-hmm. And really, yes, I mean, it, it, it really was um, something that should be done, uh, should have been done a long time. And uh, and it's not that we want to break from the, the Commonwealth, which is the, so, you know, all the ex-colonies grouping, uh, and, that, and that's why. But it, it's kind of a sort of a, it, it became an absurdity to have the, the Queen as, as the head of state. And, right. you know, it was always, always a, a transitory period. But one of, one, of the, one of the amusing things about this, and um, you guys wouldn't know that, I don't know if you know the TV show, but you know, the famous TV show, Yes, Minister. I don't know that one. I was, thinking, I, I was thinking you might say The Crown. That's the, that's no, the <laughs> Commonwealth show I'm familiar there's with. A wonderful, there's a wonderful episode where they explain that, you know, you can frame a, you can frame a referendum depending on however, whatever way you want the result to be. Right. And the green one is a great example of that. So if you ran around and you said, you know, your referenda, the referenda question was, you know, shall we get rid of the queen? Um, no would probably win. Mm-hmm. That's because Bobby and have this great respect for the queen personally. And you still go around and say things like, you know, shall we move the queen? And there was, if you use like a negative language, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, feel sure that no would probably win. I mean, if it didn't win, I bet it would do pretty well. Because we just have this sort of, you know, Barbados, we just have this kind of inherent, we, we don't want to hurt anybody. But if you went better and you had the ref- referendum and you said something like, should the Barbadian be ahead of state? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Right, right, right. So yeah, it's all in how you frame it. Exactly. So so one of the reasons why you kind of hear this sort of chatter on both sides is is the, is the problem is is nobody really has a problem with having a Barbie hit the state. But then there's a there's sort of a faction that sort of gets very upset at the thought of of, of booting the queen. Shoving you know, the queen so aside. Yeah. That, well, you know, and, you know, should we really do that? So you, you do you know, you do have that a little mm, bit. Yeah. Well, one last thing. I know we've kept you for a while, and we're beyond the the high ester now. But one thing I I saw this reported a little bit earlier in the year, and I hadn't heard much about it since. But I thought it was really interesting. Was back in May there was an announcement that um, you were funding new scholarships at the University ah, of, yeah. of the yes. West Indies, uh, and kind of the Department of History and Philosophy specifically dedicated to researching rum history in Barbados. Yes. And you were doing, I think, three doctoral scholarships and some postdoctoral fellowships. So this was actually before COVID, Friday. Okay. And then COVID really screwed it because, ah. you know, people couldn't go, the, you know, the research places are closed. Yeah. Or, you know, it was yeah. very, very difficult and no one was going in. And so we, like, kind of delayed it, delayed it. No, the idea really is there's a, there's a we created a fund, actually part of the money. Mm-hmm. And there's two aspects to how the funds would be used. Um, Barbados is currently has a, a, a playing for, um, you know, UNESCO uh, status. World Heritage. For, yeah, World yeah. Heritage Site for Sugar and Rum. Okay. So it's to help that, the research for that application. So we already have World Heritage status for the city of Bridgetown. What we want to have, and it would be a multiple site world heritage status for sugar and rum so you know and we'd, and we'd like more like to protect more sites i mean we'd like to protect sort of more of the historic sites but um yes like adding in sites to protect takes yeah. more and more work and research yeah, exactly. and everything yeah. Yeah. cooperation mm-hmm. with the owners and all the rest of it. but anyway so the idea really is is there's an ongoing need for research to help that make that project a reality and so we're happy to fund that but then the other one is to basically fund phd and postdoc research on rum so we have we have a couple of applications before us so we you know again COVID, every time we, we seem to get going there seems to be a yeah a COVID, um, outbreak a new variant uh, yeah and uh, we, we're just coming to the end of our delta wave thank goodness Hmm. No, well, there might be an Omicron wave. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's starting up up here in the U.S. Yeah, we, so we yeah. had a bad wave with, with with Delta. But anyway, so the idea, yes, uh, you know, and, and it's again part of a bigger picture. So you want to get some, you know, PhD or postdoc work done. You get some work published. You know, eventually, you know, the history course may have some Roman history in the history course. Because of the, the the research, and then you know eventually the the high school history course might have a little mm. mm-hmm. little more room in it. I love the idea of uh, of, of high school classes <laughs> taking field trips to Foursquare. Well, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it, so there's a there's a there's a, a big picture on it, and 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 I'll be honest with you too. It's a little bit of a counter to you know it's one of these things. The, the rum category is getting stronger. It's getting more valuable. And anything that's more valuable is going to be exploited. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's one, 
there's one famous brand you could probably guess who it is, but you know, it's sort of comedic. Some of the some of the advertising, you know, sort of the advertising was something went something like this, you know, rum was terrible, and it was cold killed devil because it tasted really nasty, and then we came along right. and revolutionized it and made really good rum. Yeah, mm-hmm. no complete historical nonsense, but it does hint at the problem if you don't do the proper research, you don't put the proper things down, and you you simply cannot leave. Um, leave research in the hands of the commercial entities. So as much as I would have, you know, loved to keep doing, you know, research or hire some people or whatever, uh, that's not going to do. It has to be independent. It has mm. to be properly scrutinized. And so therefore, that's why I approached the University of Western it, it cannot be the, the four square guy. Right. Right, 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 right. There has to be a firewall there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it has to be done by by you know, scholars and, and done properly. So when yeah. someone applies for one of those scholarships, are you, you're kept aside? It's not like, it's not like uh, no, you're, no. you're calling I, them I, up. Yeah, and... I do that part. So there's a committee. Okay. And there's a couple of people from the university side and then there's a couple of people from my side. Okay. And yes, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do get to choose the areas. Uh, but, you know, we're very open. I mean, I obviously have my favorite areas, but... You're, you're not uh, like looking over their shoulder as they're doing the no, research no, 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 no. and like giving notes and stuff like that. <laughs> no, and, 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 and we don't, for example, we don't take any ownership in what they produce. Okay. So under the, yeah, under the, under the agreement, they own it. All we get is a license to use it. Got so it. that, so that, that's what keeps it absolutely pure. Like we mm-hmm. can't bury it or something like that. You know, we can't, right. in other words, it's there. They own the research. They can publish the, the books. Well, actually what the way it works is the university ends up owning it unless the researcher agrees with the university. So more or less anything that we output is going to be owned by the university. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we just get this license. So, you know, we discover, you know, let's say we discover something interesting about Foursquare and I have a license. I can, okay. I can, I can reprint it and whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. But, it, it, you know, our, our mission was not, this is not a financial, you know, exercise. So, you know, we would love to see work get published. We would love to see it commercially successful. You know, we'd love to see another book on rum come out. Uh, but the, the, you know, as I say, the university own it. We, we won't own, even if, even though we back the research, we we don't retain any ownership in it at all. Right, but sort of a a potential, you know, rising tide that lifts the whole category. And exactly, uh, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the whole point. In other words, while as I say, you need to protect it from an exploitation point of view. The, the point is, part of this is this very special prominence in Rome. And the more that it's understood, it's only going to assist the value of the provenance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's one thing for me to, to just say, oh, yeah, we've been making rums since 1600s. But we want you to be able to dig in and dive into that and, and, and understand. And, yeah, I mean, it gives it gives credence to, to the whole Barbados rope category. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I know we've kept you for a while. Uh, it was it was great getting to learn more about high ester and that it's more than just high ester. There's there's a lot going on here, and um, it's exciting just to know that everything you're doing down there with cane juice seems like it's going to be a part of 
you know, Foursquare and how we think about mm-hmm. it going forward. So I'm excited to see all the ways that expresses itself in uh in what comes out of it. Like you said, I think maybe five years from now some of those those cane juice barrels are gonna be be ready. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna set a reminder for that and yeah. uh, be be keeping our eyes out then. But um before before we go, any anything else to to add or anything we didn't get to that uh you want people to know about? No, um because you really you know the good touch the BRE and, and certainly anyone who's thinking about sitting bar minutes check the, the FB page. Um, yeah, we'll put a I link up to we, the website in the show notes. I think mm-hmm. we've fixed the dates for next year, but we might not have published them. I think one of these is we're going to check and double check with a few of the guest lecturers to Got make it. sure they come. Yeah. So, but, you know, we, we've got plenty of time. I, mean, runners, I think what will happen is once the new year turns, we'll, we'll sort of start promoting it in earnest. Yeah. But it is, it is, yeah. I mean, and that, that's what we want. We want that to be, be the event that you come to bar with us. And it doesn't even matter if you've been to bar with us or you've been to the stories. You're going to have a complete new level of experience. I'm going to start saving up right now. <laughs> I mean, one of the events we sponsored was Cigar Night. So, you know. I saw that. I was going back and looking through the agenda, and I think it said, you know, Richard Seal Cigar Night. Uh, like, of course, they would sponsor Cigar Night. <laughs> I'm so, going to sponsor uh, Board Game Night, if you'll allow me. <laughs> board Game Night. <laughs> not quite as cool as Cigar Night. No, um, it's not. But you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was our interview with Richard Seal, part two, you might say. And uh, we're really, really grateful to him for the time he spent with us in talking about that. And uh, so much to learn in terms of what Foursquare is doing and what the future holds. It's really exciting yeah. uh, and, and really thankful to, to hear from him. And a nice surprise at the end of the year to kind of close out this year uh, with a, a great interview. So sure. uh, if you liked what you heard and, and you want to hear more, Will, uh, wh- where are we at on social? Where can we hear from people? What are we doing? I believe we're on Facebook at the Rumcast, on Instagram at the Rumcast. People can always reach us directly. It's like a direct line to us when you send those emails to host at rumcast.com. We're always checking those. It's always great to get little notes. If you have a Christmas wish list for the rum world, please share it with us. Uh, send us an email, host at rumcast.com. We'd love to see some of those. Or if you'd like to give us the ultimate Christmas gift, you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a little review. Tell us what you think of the show. Those are always great. They help more people discover the podcast. Like if Apple sees we have a lot of reviews, they'll they'll kind of surface the podcast for more people. And that's always helpful. But with all that said, John, I, I hope that you have a wonderful finish to your the end of the year. If you're celebrating Christmas, I hope that goes great. I know I'm about to hit the road to visit some family, and I'm really looking forward to that. And yeah, we'll we'll actually be back next week with our year in review yes. episode. So I this is so not excited. goodbye yet for 2021. We'll save our New Year's wishes for that episode. So until then, enjoy. Enjoy.